How many years have you guys been doing that? It's, it's a long time. I had changed the opening song to mess you up. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Tuesday is July 4th. There'll be no class. No class on Tuesday. Enjoy the 4th. Be safe, as they say, as I say. Uh, the following week, uh, Chris and I are going out of town for a few days, so there will be no classes on Tuesday and Wednesday of uh, the following week. So that's the 11th and the 12th of July. All right. We'll have class on Thursday, and then we'll be back to our regular schedule. I think we're, we're not – our next vacation is like the week after. I'm kidding. Uh, and the week after that – um, it, it not till August. We're uh, near the end end of August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Speaking of August, um, the church picnic. We tried to come up with another name for it. I was like, it's not really a picnic. So I was like, shindig, no, hoedown. Like, I don't know why all the South has all the good names for celebrations, but we thought about celebration. Chris was like, it sounds like a funeral. And I'm like, yeah. So church picnic is on August 12th. We uh, originally had it slated for the 19th, but that's not going to work. So August 12th. And uh, we sent out postcards that have the date and all that on it. So uh, hopefully, and if you have any, want any more details, let me know and we'll get them to you. Uh, all right. Uh, the uh, other thing, too, I wanted to mention was that uh, Pastor McLaughlin's celebration is on July 28th. Uh, that's in Rhode Island, in Warwick, Rhode Island, at uh, the Crown Plaza Hotel. So they're having, they're not having a, I think it's great, they're not having a funeral service. They're having just a, a party. Uh, I think it starts at 6.30 at night, uh, and so... I don't know if they'll stream any of that. It would be neat if they did, but uh, that's on July 28th, and I'm sure Pastor Bob's having a grand time in heaven. Um, you know, you know, I'm glad for him. Uh, so <clears throat> let's begin with prayer. Let's thank God for our time together, be able to hear and study his word and learn, continue to learn as God reveals to us such amazing and marvelous things. Uh, again, if if you're distracted by anything, now's the time to give that to God in prayer. If there's anything bothering you, don't worry about it here. Just focus on God's word and uh, with humility and reverence. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that we, as we come together, we have the place to go to hear from you. We don't, as you know, other religions, seek uh, false places or have to wait for some kind of signal or incantation. Or uh, We have your word, and your word is the sufficient and full revelation that you have given to us. It is packed, chock full with what you would have us know and what you would have us follow. Without your word, we have not have a light to our feet, not know the path or the way. And yet we do. As we'll see this morning, Father, you have blessed us with the promise that our Lord and Savior is going to return at any time. And so, Father, we know that um, 
you have all things under control in this world. Uh, We don't know the future, but we have hope in that future. We know that you are going to take care of all things in your righteousness and in your justice. And so, Father, we ask that you uh, impress upon our hearts today the encouragement and comfort and hope that comes from knowing that you are going to fulfill all your good purposes. Uh, We ask, Father, that through your Spirit, each of our hearts would be ministered to. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please. Thank you. 
At a service in Germany in 1968, Elizabeth Sherrill heard two speakers. The first was a man who had been a prisoner of a concentration camp. He had been brutalized and starved. His father and a brother had died in the camp in the Holocaust. The man's face and body told the story more eloquently than his words. Pain haunted eyes, shaking hands that could not forget. He was followed at the lectern by a white-haired woman, broad of frame and sensible of shoe, with a face that radiated love, peace, and joy. But the story that these two people related was the same. She, too, had been in a concentration camp, experienced the same savagery, suffered identical losses. The man's response was easy to understand, but hers. Her name is Corey Ten Boom, and she wrote the book um, The Hiding Place, which I just started uh, last week. Highly recommend it. Yeah, wonderful. So this uh, Elizabeth Sherrill and her husband who wrote this book for, uh, well, wrote it with Corey, so they, they commented to Corey about afterwards, after her speech, this is the first time they met her, about the practicalness of the things that she recalled, how her memories seemed to throw a spotlight on problems and decisions that we face in the here and now. This is what Corey said. This is what the past is for. Every experience God gives us, every person he puts in our lives, is the perfect preparation for the future that only he can see. And that is my new definition of the word hope. That's what hope is. To see the here and now, the people in our lives, the circumstances we face, all controlled by God, preparing us, it's our wilderness journey, preparing us for a future that we can't see, but He can. Too many people are planning on a future that they think they can see, rather than planning on a future that they know God can see. And that is hope. And hope, you know, it makes us happy, peaceful people, no matter who, what, where, when is in our lives. So, <clears throat> Corey stared probably the most evil people in the history of mankind. Not, not that the Nazis, like, I mean, that not that other people can't become Nazis. It's generally that uh, there are evil people out there who don't have the opportunity that the Nazis had. Uh, really perverse, evil people who were all of a sudden given stupendous amount of power. Most evil people don't have that, thankfully. But there are evil people in the world. Uh, I just, as a precursor to this, I was like, well, you know what? And I haven't been reading the news near as much as I used to, especially after they kicked Tucker off of Fox. I was like, you know what? You know what, I'm, I'm kind of done with Fox. Even Gutfeld, and I really like Gutfeld, but I haven't been watching him. Um, I open up the news, and there they all are, right? Right there, front and center. Who's doing this, that, and the other? They're all in a uh, complete they, meaning the left, all in an uproar over recent Supreme Court decisions that are just obviously fair to any normal thinking person. But, you know, uproar it is. How do you look at the evil people in this world? It's very important. When you read the news, do you get angry, anxious, vengeful? 
Do you lose your peace? Corey again. I know that the experiences of our lives, when we, get, when we let God use them, become the mysterious and perfect preparation for the work He will give us to do. And she includes in that her experience in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. I know, and and I didn't know anything about this woman until I started reading this book. I'm just in love with her. But, um, you know, uh, relating her experience with her father, uh, her father, a devout Christian man uh, who was a watchmaker, and uh, just his wisdom, his wisdom from reading the scripture. Every morning at breakfast, he read a chapter out of the Bible to all his kids and everybody who was in the house. If you were in the house, guest, customer at the watch shop, you sat at the table and listened to that chapter. The experience of our lives, when we let God use them, that is the key, right? When we let God use them, that's our faith, our hope. It says, you know what, God, this situation goes into your hands. Those people go into your hands. This is the application of faith. And we we grab hold of God's Word. And what does the Word of God say that I should do? What does the Word of God, in other words, what does He say that I should think and I should do? How I should act? And even if my flesh don't want to, and so often, I mean, all the time, your flesh isn't going to want to submit in that way. God is in control. The Son of God is returning to not only put a stop to evil, but and this evil that He has allowed to course through this world. It's all allowed by Him. Just reading through the Old Testament, you'll see that God uses evil nations for His very purposes. Like He did Assyria, like He did Babylon, uh, with uh, uh, to teach His own people lessons. Um, during the, the Judges, God used... Various nations to discipline his own people. He used them. He didn't force them. He's just that smart. And for someone that smart, who is our God, we know that he's in control. But we're also promised, as we see today in the first chapter of Second Thessalonians, that he's coming back. The Lord's coming back. He left, he left us, ascended into heaven. The disciples watched him go. And as they stood there gaping, probably mouths wide open, an angel appeared and said, why do you look up? He's coming back the same way that he left. When? You don't get to know that. But we know it's going to happen. This is stated over and over again by the Apostle Paul, very much so in these first letters that he wrote, which were to the Thessalonians, first letters that are recorded in the Scripture. Not only is Christ going to put a stop to the evil in this world, he's going to repay evil with judgment. He's going to, they're all, whoever, they're going to get paid in kind, meaning, what, and that's up to God, however we want the payment to go down. Step out of the arena of judgment, please, for your own sake. If God has such control, isn't it obvious that he has a purpose for it? Everything. Everything. I mean, wrap your mind around that. Everything everybody does, everybody says. The elites, all the way down to the person, nobody has no power whatsoever. God has a purpose for everything that everybody does. That's infinite power and wisdom. It's very difficult for us to comprehend 
such a thing. But he has it. Now, if God is such control, and is, it's obvious, therefore, that he has a purpose for it, since that it's true, are we not in the wrong to complain or get angry at God's purposes? Now, I know there's a righteous indignation. I'm pretty sure I have yet to have it. Uh, I don't think at any time my anger has been righteous. And I've got plenty of it boiling inside of me that I have to keep there, away, put aside. But, you know, is it right for us to get angry at his purposes? And this frees us. We're to be free from this. And this is what Paul does. Paul tells them that, well, how we view the evil people in this world in the light of the coming Christ. The Thessalonians are being persecuted mightily. In both letters, Paul states this. that They're being persecuted in the first letter. In the second letter, it says the same thing. And, and in fact, states how proud he is of them for their continued and increasing faith and love in the midst of great tribulation. They're, they're being greatly persecuted, more so than probably any of us are. And yet, they stick with it. They're sticking by faith in God's Word, loving, faithfully working. And as Paul will see at the end of the chapter, Paul says, Now, I pray that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and glorify His name. There's something about that name, that name that has been proclaimed to the human race since the fall, first come to us as the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. <clears throat> so, how do we view the evil in this world? In light of the coming Christ, that is important. On the contrary, we could look at people in this world not, or the events of this world, not in light of the coming Christ. If, I mean, if he's not coming back to make things right, then we're all, you know, we're on our own here. And everybody's going to, quote-unquote, get away with it, aren't they? If he's not coming back to judge, then they are. But he is. And no one's going to get away with a thing. This frees us, right? He said, no, no. And, and, and <clears throat> you know, we're going to suffer, as he told us. But, and we're, you know, when do we get a reprieve? Heaven. <laughs> And Paul says that here. You will get relief, he says to the Thessalonians. I can see them. I, I see Mostly, these letters are written to be read out loud. It's one of the things that you, um, when you, when that thought dawns on you from the scripture, you think, then you can see why, you know, some of the writing seems peculiar if someone's writing like an essay or something, but it's not. Paul is writing his letters to be read by someone out loud. There's a lot of illiteracy in the ancient world. Uh, and anyway, you can imagine that you're hearing in Thessalonia that you're hearing the person say, and Paul says, you will get relief. And the moment you hear that in your mind, you're like, today, tomorrow? And then he says, and I, if I were reading it out loud, I'd give a dramatic pause there. And you will get relief when the Lord returns. And you're like, oh man, right, we have to wait until then. So, we have to understand that the journey that we're on until then is all a lesson. 
It's one long lesson of how to trust the Lord, how to obey the Lord, how to love the Lord and love others, how to have hope, how to increase faith. You know, relationships are things that grow, right? Don't they? All relationships grow. They can grow backwards, they can grow forwards, but they never stay the same. And, you know, what makes a relationship, a relationship with God is, peace, is, is love and faith and hope. Those three, those are the triad, the great triad, faith, hope, and love. And therefore, if relationships grow, so do they. Faith grows, hope grows, love grows. Or it can grow cold. Our relationship with God is always progressive. And God has designed your life and mine and everything in it to teach you how to love, how to have more faith, more hope, more love. He's teaching you. It's the whole thing is a lesson. It's a classroom. And you know, when you view it that way, A, you won't quit. You'd be tempted to, I'm sure, but you won't. Don't you want to learn the next lesson? I mean, even if you got a big fat F on the last lesson, don't you want to learn the next one? Because God never stops instructing. We never quit. We see, and therefore we see the purpose. It's wonderful to see that something is not just an arbitrary, awful thing that's hard to go through. It's not arbitrary. God has purposely put there, that is there for a lesson for me. That changes your whole perspective on what that thing is. And that gives you the ability to go forward in it with a greater attitude, with more faith, certainly more hope. So, the coming of the Lord. We are all in constant need of encouragement. Why is that? Oh, we're all weak. We're all weak. We are all in constant need of encouragement. That's why we have words God's encouragement come from. It comes through his word and through the Holy Spirit's ministry of that word to your heart. To you, the regenerated believer who are and who is the son and daughter of God, you need constant encouragement. And that's why we continue to go back to the word over and over and over. <clears throat> why do we need encouragement so frequently? Our spiritual lives are frail. The reason why they're frail is because they're in our hands. Our, your, the quality of your spiritual life depends completely on your decisions. It depends on your faith. Exodus generation is a perfect example of this. They could have had a marvelous, fruitful, fun journey through the wilderness. Yes, fun. And they could have entered the promised land in a year, less than a year. They could have been in there setting up camp, kicking everybody out, setting up their farms, their, you know, all their, their cool new stuff. They could have been doing it, but no. They failed. They failed in faith. They failed to believe as much as God taught them over and over and over. They failed it. And <clears throat> this exodus is mentioned multiple times by the prophets and in the New Testament repeated again by Paul and the writer of Hebrews as a lesson to us. So our spiritual lives are frail. Why? Not because spirituality is frail. It's the strongest thing there is. But our lurking pride that is just under the surface that causes us to fear, to want our own way, to be selfish, and so on. We're also very forgetful. It's very easy to forget 
when you get occupied with other things in your life and for them. It's just a moment it takes and you forget, say what I just mentioned before, that this thing, is, this thing that you're facing is a lesson from God and that God is fully involved in it. And we forget. We're constantly assaulted by our enemies. We're constantly assaulted by temptation. By a world full of people who reject the gospel, who are needy, who throw those needs on you. We're constantly assaulted by the flesh. We're constantly assaulted by unhappy people who splash their unhappiness on you, on us. If you have found happiness in the Lord, there'll be plenty of unhappy people who want to contaminate you (laughs) with their unhappiness. So in both of these letters in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, just to state that they are letters of encouragement. Okay? Both letters are letters of encouragement. They're Paul's first letters, and that's what they are. They're encouraging to people who get it. They're encouraging to Christians who are faithful to the word. In both letters, Paul gives thanks for their hope and their for their faith and their hope and their love. Actually, he puts it in a different order there. He does faith, love, and hope, but he he gives excuse me he gives thanks to them for their faith, uh, love, and hope. In the second letter, he says that he's thankful that all all of that has increased. In both letters, he uh, Paul and his and them are heavily persecuted for the faith. And he he spends quite a few sentences speaking of the persecution that they face and Paul faces as well. Both letters frequently mention the coming of Christ. So there's eschatology, the last days, uh, writing about the last days, the coming of Christ in both letters. Now, If you just read these both letters and you try and figure out, all right, rapture, second coming, millennium, and you try and put that all in order just from these two letters, well, good luck for good luck with that. You're not going to be able to. And it's because and when that happens like that, we have to conclude, and it's important, that Paul is writing about the second coming of Christ for encouragement. He is not in these letters going into you know, the difference between a rapture and a second coming. He's not at all going into that. Now, we use these passages to help us understand the order of eschatological things, things to come in the future, um, and still it's, you know, we don't get an absolute 100% clear picture. But that's not a problem. You know, I know it's not a problem because God doesn't tell us. Uh, But what we do know is the Lord's coming back. And as Paul, as Paul has sta- stated in both these letters, it's imminent. So it could be today, tomorrow, a thousand years from now, but it is imminent. Chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, if you go there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, chapter 1 summarizes pretty much the entire first letter. And again, it's of encouragement. He commends them, he thanks them. He's very grateful for them. They're uh, amazingly faithful for a brand new church. They're only saved a few months. And they are in the midst of great persecution in their town. uh, Thessalonica is 
uh, on the coast, and so there's um, there's, a, there's a great amount of influx of trading and business, and uh, and so it's a wealthy place as, as well. So you know there's a lot of people there, a lot of worldly people. You know where there's a lot of money, there's going to be a lot of worldly people, and uh, you know they're in conflict with. And these are people that they lived with, that they were, you know, cousins, uncles, mother, father, too, and also friends with, did business with. And also, uh, the, in that time, pagan rituals were the thing to do. Like, so, you know, if you go to a fourth, if we go to see fireworks, if that's the first century, then it's a, it's a firework ritual based on Baal or Murloc or whoever. It's always based on some god. False God. Everything that they do. Even the athletic games. If, like if it were today, you turn on a football game, the football game would be dedicated to Baal. And at halftime, they'd be offering to Baal. Which they kind of do. <laughs> like the commercials. and you know, I don't know. I, no, I, I'm not a legalist. In, enjoy football, believe me. But... Um, you know, it's that kind of thing. And so the Christians were like, well, I can't go to the game anymore. I can't go to the fireworks show anymore. I can't even go to your nephew's birthday party because you're going to sacrifice to false gods, and I can't be a part of it. And so how do you think they were treated? By their own families. And so what do you do? Do you cave? Some, uh, many did. Many did. Many do in the church. But in Thessalonica, they were like, uh-uh. And they were mocked and ridiculed and you know, no one's going to do business with them. So they're poorer. They stood their ground. So do you think if you're in a situation like that where you're standing your ground and you're looking around and, you know, how many people are really supporting you and are behind you and believe what you believe not many, you need encouragement. You need it all the time. It's okay to be weak and let God be strong in you. So look at first one. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus, the inventor of the light bulb. Poor, poor Bible joke. That's also Silas. He is Silas's other name. Yeah. <clears throat> To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, right here at the salutation. Well, usually blaze over the salutation. That's just like the dear Thessalonians. So we don't really read it. We just keep going. But notice how in the salutation in verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, it means that the church owes its very existence and its life to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In some mysterious, unknown, unheard, unfelt way, God is in you making your spiritual life work. It is not you. You are involved. That's so. what I love a great deal about the spiritual life is God has made it function based on our decisions. But when our decisions are good... And the thing works so beautifully, it is not us that's making it work. Our church here, the basement church, has worked 
It is not us that has made it work. Believe me. Unless God is doing what He does. Sit back and enjoy the ride. Don't sit back too much. You know, there's a lot of work to do, but enjoy it. There's work to do. Enjoy it. John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that means everything that you do, everything that you're faced. So, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the agape love of each of you toward uh, one another grows even greater, which is what he asked them to do in the first letter, to excel still more, and they actually did. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you. This is pretty rare that Paul would speak proudly of someone else. Uh, You don't read this in the letter to the Corinthians. But to them he does. It's amazing. But So it's really a word of boasting. I boast about you. It seems anti-Christian, but when Paul would boast about them, he would be really boasting about the Lord doing the work in them, not boasting about how you know, smart they are and how great they are, but really about their faith. You know, he could say, you know, he could say to whoever he came across in another city that I, the Thessalonians heard my message for a, basically like three to four weeks and it changed their lives. And because of their faith, their whole lives are changed. By faith, God can work wonders in you and that's how you would boast about someone else. So it's really encouragement as well. You know, as one of my commentators brings out, we think, you know, rather than, we, we feel kind of odd saying to someone, you know, I've noticed God in you, or I've noticed your faith increasing, and I think it's great. And we think, you know, we probably shouldn't do that because they'll get all proud and arrogant and stuff. And then, yeah, I get that. They might. And And then right after that, if you see them puffed up, you can say, Oh, you know, now I see your faith decreasing. It was increasing before, but now you're a big fat jerk. See you later. But, uh, you know, we can commend one another in the right way. So then he says in verse 5, now, uh, so oh, I'm sorry, verse 4, Therefore we speak ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith. He doesn't mention hope here, but that perseverance would be it's always linked to hope, right? I keep going even though I don't know what the future holds. Perseverance. For your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. All right, so there should be a pause. The New American Standard keeps it all one paragraph, but I think it should be broken there. Verses 5 through 10 are all about the Lord coming back. And this is just, it's a comforting, amazing piece of literature because it's something that, well, the ancient world, say Israel in the first century before the cross couldn't possibly have had anything like this written to them. It's, I mean, it's obvious. Uh, They're looking for the first coming of the Lord we're looking for the second coming. So obviously we're post-cross. But because we're post-cross, the thing that we, this is 
the excitement of our very lives is not we're waiting for the Messiah to be born. We're waiting for the Messiah to come back and make everything right. And they're both wonderful and exciting. But for us, whereas, you know, for Israel, this is, in Israel, you weren't expecting any day for the birth of the Messiah. Right? The prophecies of it were in the future. If you're, if you're Isaiah, you know it ain't going to happen in your, in your lifetime. But for us, it's any day. So in verse 5, this is a plain indication, meaning proof. This word means that it's a proof of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. That's so powerful. And so, uh, what? Not wishy-washy, right? They will be repaid. They will pay the penalty. There will be retribution. And therefore, I don't have to judge them. And my hope, you know, so which side of the line do you want to be here? Do you want to be a sheep or a goat when he comes back? If you're, sheep is the believer. So if you're the sheep, right, it says that you'll marvel. You'll marvel at his return. But the goat, the unbeliever, how awful. How absolutely awful. And so when we look at, you know, whoever, evil people, enemies, enemies of ours, those who are persecuting us, if we, we understand the, the depth of the horror of what retribution will be. Eternal destruction, this is, this is clear. That it would make our love, which subject we just finished, it would make our love for our enemies, for the unbeliever, to be one that is of, I will do whatever it takes. Bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. To get you on the other side of that line. What, what do I have to do? Prayer, word, deed, to help you to see. Now we, we can't force them. We know that. But to truly minister the ministry of reconciliation to the world. That as bad and as evil as you are, you can be delivered by the Lord's cross because He died for your sins in a moment. So rather than me getting angry at them, I pity them. Rather than me judging them, I do good to them. They ain't going to pray for themselves, so I'm going to pray for them. And I'm not going to fear. I'm not going to fear. They're going to to vilify me. They're going to spit in my face. They're going to persecute me. That's exactly what the Lord promised. 
So we wait for this day. How wonderful. You know, one of the things that I've thought lately about heaven is everybody's going to be happy and content. Oh, what a relief, including myself. But, you know, what gets me the most is un- the people around me that are unhappy. Um, you might, I, I shouldn't say that because, you know, I just have Chris and Maggie around me. <laughs> you're, probably, you're probably like, yeah, Joe, I know, I've seen it. Um, it's not just them. It's not. It's all. It's all of us. That just. I just jump into a hole there. I do. She. She is five, and she is thirty-eight. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding about that. But, you know, just anywhere. You know, people on the news, people uh, around you that are neighbors, and you know, we have friends of ours live locally with us, they keep making, people we've come to know over the last few years, and they keep making the same bad decisions over and over. And and, and we're, you know, we try to help them, and it, and it becomes, you know, it's the same help. And like, man, if you just, just get with it and be content, you know, and not only would you be happy, but I, so would I be, you know. And, uh, but, Right? How how long have I been running away from God, and others have had to help me? And you can show if, if you think if you're walking into like Israel, walking into the promised land, right? For us, the promised land is that maturity where you finally get it, and you're like, you know what? I give my whole life to the Lord, and you can so easily forget what the wilderness journey was like, and how bad you were at it. And you look at others who are in the wilderness who are acting poorly. And you're like, you are terrible. You're a terrible person. So until we're waiting, that day when the Lord comes, he's going to make everything right. Everybody's going to be happy. Everybody's going to be healthy. Everybody's going to be just beaming with joy. Awesome. But until that day. Verse 11. To this end also we pray that you always, for you always, sorry, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and, to, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Until that day, walk in a manner worthy of his calling and glorify his name. Now, his name is all over the scripture. It is the name. And so what I want to do, just in a, in a matter of minutes here, is to kind of take a walk down memory lane of, of very brief Old Testament passages that speak of the anticipation of this coming king. Because with the, with the king, notice it says here at the end that you walk in a manner worthy of your calling and glorify his name. Not your name, his name. And so when you're glorifying him, everything that you do is unto him, like him, because he's given you his life. And it's with that life that we really prosper. And that life is a holy life. You can't get around that. Right? Sinfulness doesn't work in this life. We're all sinners. I know. Me too. 
But we can't give into it. We've got to overcome it because we won't live this life. This life has been given to us as the most supreme gift that God has given to anyone. Not even angels have it. And we possess it. God's life, eternal life, the life of our Lord. And it to be lived, it has to be lived properly. It's the only way to live it. So, you know, unto his name means that you have a king who is holy, righteous, and just. And if your king is, you must be as well. His kingdom, holy, righteous, and just. And you must be as well. Love, hope, peace, all of it. Every virtue. And if you're not that, you're not thinking with, walking with, being, living with the kingdom and with your king. You're acting independently of him. And all of us know that that is a miserable branch. As a branch, right off the vine, there's the branches that produce fruit, and there are other branches that are dead stuff. And when we don't abide in the Lord and walk in His way and His love, that's we're headed down a wrong branch. All right, go to Judges 21:25. This is the last line of Judges. So actually, find Ruth 1:1, and you'll have both our passages that we're going to look at. Judges 21-25. So we, uh, years ago, studied the book of Judges. It was great fun. Um, I just read through it again uh, last week, and it's, uh, what a rough time in Israel. And what happened? You know, the generation of Joshua all knew the Lord. They did great. And then the next generation in Judges chapter 2 didn't know the Lord. And so, this is what happened in uh, 2125, last line. In those days, now it's important that this is the last line. The writer of Judges, you know, when, when people write these letters, they're not, writing them, they're not just like recording a history and then saying, oh, okay, I'm done, period. They're putting this here on purpose. They want to influence the reader. That's what this, these narratives do. In, in 2125, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And the last two stories in Judges, the last story in Judges is the priests, the Levites, concubine, who is viciously raped all night long by a gang of people. They're all Jews in, Benjam- in, in the tribe of Benjamin. And then, and then the, the priest himself, when he find- first he comes out, I shouldn't laugh, he finds her dead on the steps and he says, get up, come on, we're leaving. And his host, who was hosting the Levite, who was staying there, all the people wanted to get in and rape the Levite. And the host said, here, take his concubine. Rape her. Leave us alone. And they did. And they killed her. And then the priest cut her into 12 pieces and sent each piece to the, one of the tribes of Israel. Say this is what happened to my wife. It wasn't even his wife. It was his concubine. And then afterward, it didn't even get better after that. They told the, all the other tribes of Israel, like, well, this is crazy. We need, to, we need to get the people who did this to her. And the tribe of Benjamin said, no, you can't get them. 
will war with you before you deal with those people. They stood up for them. Even in our modern world, we're like, how does such a thing happen? This is Israel, not long after they've entered the promised land. And what? No king. Why does he make that point? Uh, Without a righteous king, mankind does what he likes. I thought that was a slide, but it's not. Without a righteous king, mankind does what he likes. If we don't have the Lord as our king and our Lord who's commanding us, wouldn't we, we all just do what we want? And that's how the whole world who rejects the Lord and doesn't know him and doesn't believe the gospel, that's exactly what they do. Now, they're not cutting up concubines because they don't want to go to jail. But imagine if there were no police. Imagine what? New York City? <laughs> where, they have, where they've defunded the police? The first place that it really happened was in Minneapolis? And crime skyrocketed? Same in all the big cities? It's Satan's plan to create violence, to make people afraid. If you're afraid, you're controllable much more easily. It's the whole design. And God has allowed it to happen so that we could be a light to the world. Not that we march on Washington to reinstate the police. If you want to do that, you're a citizen, you have a right. But really, should truly for us to be, even those who are in danger, to say, I'm not afraid because the Lord is my warrior, my shield. My high tower. I don't, I'm not afraid. You become a light to the world. Alright, so no king in Israel. Then in Ruth, Ruth 1.1. 1, 1. Ruth occurs in the time of the judges. In a land of utter fail... Uh, sorry, Ruth said, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And uh, Abimelech, right? Is her, her husband's name. And Ruth... They leave with their two sons and go to Moab. Beautiful, beautiful book. In the land of, oh, I guess I didn't make a slide out of this either. What do I do with my slides? Whatever, hi, Corey. Anyway, in a land of utter failure to follow the Lord, we find Ruth and Boaz. Right, in the midst of stuff that's happening, like I just described in Benjamin, you've got a guy like Boaz. There's always a remnant. He is a marvelous man, and so is Ruth, a marvelous woman. And the story progresses. There was no king in Israel, so all do what they want, but not Boaz, not Ruth. They do what the Lord wants, despite the fact that there's no king. But go to the end of Ruth, go to Ruth 4.17. Uh, in, a, in an environment of death comes life, and the life comes from a very unexpected place, which is the Moabite woman with a Jewish man who's going to give a grandson to Naomi, who thinks that she is hopeless. When she returned to Israel, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has been bitter with me. In verse 17, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Why is that at the end of Ruth? Because at the end of Judges, there's no king. At the end of Ruth, there's a king coming. 
in the book of Ruth, there's a king's kinsman redeemer. Go to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. Kinsman redeemer, what is this? Well, if your husband died and you had no children, your husband's brother was to marry you and to produce uh, with you children for your brother to preserve his land and his name. And funny enough, well, we already left Ruth, but there's a second genealogy in Ruth that starts with a guy named Perez. And we're like, why is this guy Perez here? Well, Perez is the son of Judah. And Judah made this child with a girl named Tamar. And Tamar, her husband, who was Judah's son, you following all this now? Who was Judah's, Judah, uh, Judah's son died, and he said to his other son, marry her, and he didn't want to, and he died. And then he said to his other son, marry her, and he did, but he wouldn't have a child with her. That's the spilled his seed on the ground passage. And uh, he wouldn't have a child with her, so God saw that evil and killed him. And then Tamar's like, well, I don't have a husband. So she disguised herself as a uh, harlot and finagled Judah, her father-in-law, to sleep with her and had Perez in the line of David. But Perez is really a child of a kinsman redeemer in a really evil way. <laughs> all right, So there's, the kinsman redeemer is stamped on this, on the book of Ruth. But from all this comes David. And David, you know, he's the king, right? He's a man after God's own heart. He's virtuous. He's wonderful. He brings peace and prosperity to Israel. But he is no Messiah. He's a failure He's a sinner. He's got flaws galore. But he loves the Lord. Look at Isaiah 54.4. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Right. So we have a widow here who's ashamed and disgraced. For your husband, well, wait a minute, I'm a widow. Yeah, because this is a kinsman redeemer. Your husband is your maker. Did you see that? Your kinsman redeemer is not the brother of the man who died. It is God who made you. Your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, just in case you were wondering. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. Man, that chokes me up, that passage. That's you and me. You know who uh, we're widows to? Sin and death. All of us. Romans chapter 7. Our old husband was sin, death. And the Mosaic Law that pointed it out so clearly that we did not make the grade. And... In Romans 7, a new husband. And here, your new husband is your maker, the Lord of hosts. Now, to become your husband, you have to pay a price. You have to pay 
Just like Boaz did for Ruth, he had to pay for the land. And the payment is in the chapter before this. The kinsman redeemer would suffer beyond recognition, beyond imagination, I should say. Look at Isaiah 53.4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Isaiah 53 is about the suffering servant who would suffer so that he could marry us. The price for us was sins of the world. Sins of the whole world, yes. Are all of our sins. So, right, so just really briefly here, we have at the end of Judges, no king. At the end of Ruth, the king is coming, but the king, he's not perfect by any means. And, that, that's, and then comes, so that first Samuel comes. After Ruth, you have first Samuel. In first Samuel, you see David, he comes to power, but in first Samuel, he fails. But he does, he does marvelously. He's better than any king Israel ever had. But then in 2 Samuel, so and in the Hebrew Bible, first there is no first and second. It's all Samuel. As it progresses, there's a promise made to David. In our Bible, it's 2 Samuel chapter 7. You're going to have a son who's going to reign on the throne forever. No king to a king is coming. So he's not good enough as a king. He's going to have a son who is going to be good enough to be a king. And he's going to redeem you with his very own life and become your husband. This happens. The cross happens. He's resurrected. He sends into heaven. And here we are. Redeemed. He is your husband forever. You're born again and saved forever. You have eternal life. You are all set. You're citizens of heaven. For us, it's a done deal. And what God did for us, amazingly, is that He put us in an age where all of these wonderful promises that we anticipate and long for are always just in the future. And not all, all the promises of the, the spiritual life, the election, predestination, our adoption, uh, our, our you know, indwelling of God, our relationship with the Lord, the fact that we're His bride, and on and on and on, are all ours now, every day, and forever. The ability to approach the throne of grace with boldness and pray to Him as our Father, as believer priests, and having a high priest, all of this is ours day in and day out, every moment of every day. But when the reality of that kingdom that we'll be a part of, when everybody's happy and content, when there's no more problems amongst anyone, where we are sinless in resurrection bodies, that's always... Corrie Ten Boom's father, after she, after as a young girl, realized that people die, she relates this story, and she t- she's crying, and she says, Daddy, I don't want to lose you. You know, all kids come to a point where they realize that death is a real thing. She realizes this. And he says to her, Corey, he said, he's such a smart guy. He says, Corey, when we go on the train, when do I buy the ticket? And she thinks, she's like eight or nine years old. 
she thinks she's like, well, right before we get on the train. He said, exactly. He said, no one buys their ticket into the next world until right before they're ready to go. So he said to her, don't be thinking about my ticket before it's time. Don't think about your own. When it's time to get the ticket, God's going to make you ready. Guys, brilliant. And same for us. We're like, when's the ticket? And God's like, well, it could be today or it might not be. So, last passage of Psalm 37. We have to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We have to glorify His name. Now, we have to tap into His power that He gives us through the Spirit and the Word. Right? We must always recall the Word of God and be faithful to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say that I must think and do and say now? And when I forget to do that, and I will, to recall it. This, when the sin happens, to confess it and recall the truth. To change the course. If I'm on the wrong way, to change it. When God has so gracefully revealed to me that I'm headed down the wrong branch. And ask Him in prayer, could you cut this branch off? Right In John 15, the Father's the pruner. These are my invisible shears, by the way, if you're wondering what I'm doing. Could you cut that branch off? It's an excellent prayer. Oh, be be ready. Because that's it's going to be painful. A lot of us say, could you cut that branch off? And just not not yet. No, not today. He knows. He knows your thoughts. He's like, okay, I'll wait. I'll wait. When do you really want to cut off? Because I am going to show you how awful it is. I'm going to make you face it. How terrible that branch is that you've been heading down and you keep heading down. And then you're going to beg me to cut it off. And I will. And I'm going to cut off a whole bunch of other stuff too. And you're like, no, 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 no. I just wanted that one cut off. And I go, no, no, I want, I want abundant fruit out of you. So do you. So we live in a world full of, full of it. Full of it until we're home, until the Lord returns. Paul's writing about the coming of the Lord to the Thessalonians to give them comfort, but to tell them to keep enduring, keep pressing on, glorify the name of the Lord, and walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He is coming back. Don't seek vengeance on them. He's going to do that. Retribution galore on them. Don't stand in the way of that. Follow me. Psalm 37.1 We think actually this is David's last psalm. That he, might, he probably wrote as an old man. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not, be not envious towards wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land our promised land, our for us maturity, and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. As Paul said to the Thessalonians in the second letter, it is only right that you should suffer in this way because the righteous judgment of God. Right? It's right. Because God's judgment is righteous, the people who are unrighteous are going to persecute you who are walking in righteousness. It's just, it's just, it's proof. It's proof of the fact that what God is going to judge is truly evil. It's not arbitrary. So, God will judge the unrighteous. Don't fret. This made me think of, do I have a slide for this? I think I, oh, there they are. (laughs) My slides. Oh, and I had like cool pictures. All right, let me show you Ruth. There's. There's Ruth. Did I? It took me a little while to do this today, and uh, yeah, there she is, Ruth and Boaz. Oh well. Um. But what about fill in the blank? Yeah, what about John? That's what Peter says. What about John? What about the Democrats? <laughs> what about the Board of Education? Right, Supreme Court said you can't, you can't, um, um, what? You can't make decisions based on race, right? You can't, you can't let people into your universities and schools on a race basis. All of us say, well, duh, right? It should be based on merit. The people at the Board of Education, I read a quick article about this. They said, now nah, we're going to do it anyway. Oh, and I, I read that, and I'm like, well, oh, come on. Like, who's going to arrest them? <sighs> who's going to arrest them? The people in charge are in charge of the DOJ, and, and no one's going to arrest them. They all get away with everything. So they think. They don't. No one's getting away with a thing. We just read it. Nobody. Don't worry. Don't fret, David says. Trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in Him. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. So Jesus says to Peter, what's that to you? You follow me. And then at the end of the Bible, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. Quickly? It's been 2,000 years, guy. (laughs) Quickly? What is your definition of quickly? That's like me telling Maggie, all right, we're going out the door. Get ready quickly. It's not going to happen quickly. The Lord is patient. The longer He's patient, the more people get saved. Every day, somebody, I'm sure every day, thousands of people get saved. All right. Uh, We're going to celebrate communion. Let's pass out our elements. We'll celebrate communion and wrap it up. Thank you for your patience.
And as we know in in the upper room where this was first celebrated, where Jesus, every time, every time. Yeah, go for it, Raj. I forgot about something again. I lost my slides. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw. And behold, a white horse. There's a man going round taking names. And he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up at the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear? into the potter's ground when the man comes around hear the trumpets hear the pipers one hundred million angels singing multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum voices calling voices crying some are born and some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree. The virgins are all trimming their wicks. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Till Armageddon, no shalom, no shalom. Then the father hen will call his chickens home. The wise men will bow down before the throne. And at his feet they'll cast their golden crowns. When the man comes around. Whoever is unjust, let him be unjust still. Whoever is righteous, let him be righteous still. Whoever is filthy, let him be filthy still. Listen to the words long written down. When the man comes around. Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers. One hundred million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big cattle drum. Voices calling, voices crying. Some are born and some are dying. 
It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree. The virgins are all trimming their wicks. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In measured a hundred weight and fifty pounds. Chris and Joni may put that together years ago. Could you hit the lights for me again, Karen? Thank you, dear. Um, so, you know, with the uh, time here, I'm sorry I forgot about the video. But, um, you know, as we know, the, the Lord had washed the disciples' feet in the upper room. And this is a picture of, you know, before he returns, what are we to do? As we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, as we glorify his name, we have to be just like him. And so, and, and here when we, when we take in the bread and the water, we realize that because of his amazing sacrifice, that we have been given life, his life. His body, he said, this is for you. This cup, which is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of all sins, your sins are all forgiven, this is for you. Now, before I come back, be like me. Wash each other's feet. He said to them, do you know why I wash your feet? Nobody answered, at least not in the Gospel of John. It's not stated. He said, what I do, you do not realize now, but you'll understand hereafter. He said, wash each other's feet. Serve one another. Love one another. And don't fear... I've conquered all things. And as Johnny Cash, servant of the Lord, became a believer, said perfect, says perfectly there, he's coming back. So as Paul says, I received from the Lord, that's what I delivered to you, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of our Lord. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May you come quickly, our Lord Jesus, in his honor. Let's drink the cup together. Let's pray, and as we pray, I'll offer the gospel to anyone listening. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. 
And thank you for the promises of our Lord's return as we eagerly await. We thank you, Father, for a knowledge and a confidence and a hope in the future. A future with you eternally. Our time here on earth, though at times it seems so long, is actually so very short. You will not give us more than we're able to handle, which in each of us is our very lives. So we thank you, Father. We ask that through your, through your Spirit that we would be thankful for everything that you give us in our lives. Learn how. And Father, as we close, we offer your salvation. It's not ours. But your salvation to anyone listening who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior. And if anyone's listening and has not believed in Christ, I beg you to please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of the world, and He's also the Judger of the world. You can be on either side of that line, and that's up to you. You don't work for it. You couldn't. You do nothing other than believe. It's an acceptance of a gift. You have to hold out your hand to receive the gift, and that is by faith. To believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior, whom He is who died for you and resurrected on the third day and ascended into heaven just for you. If you were the only one who needed salvation, He would have done it for you. So believe upon Him and you will be saved. Thank you so much, Father, for our time here together. In Christ's name, Amen. I will take our offering. And then uh, just a reminder, we won't have class on Tuesday. The Johnny Cash song's been in my head all morning because we, li- we had to listen to it this morning to make sure it was, you know, that this file was right and all that. Yeah. So let's pray for our offering. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give as your believer priests. We give to you, to you Father. Um, of what we can, we do graciously so that your ministry, your ministry, your gospel can continue to go forward. Lead us in the use of the funds that you give us to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Yeah, you ready to go, Raj? Awesome. You're dismissed. Thank you, everybody, and enjoy the fourth.